Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we are diving into the world of grasslands and glades through the lens of an entomologist that just loves the interaction between plants and insects. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Joe Von Hill, who spends a lot of time trying to understand how different structures of grasslands and glades affect the insect communities that live in them. He's got a lot of really cool insights into how different conditions set the stage for different kinds of organisms, but also how restoration of these habitats can change things for the better. I'm going to leave all of that for him to talk about because he is a great storyteller, but I just want to say conversations like this can't happen without support, and there are a lot of great ways to support Indefensive Plants. One of the best is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. I couldn't be doing this without my patrons, so go check that out. Once again, that's patreon.com slash plants. But that's entirely enough out of me. I don't want to keep you from this any longer. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jovan Hill. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Jovan Hill, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you about your research today, but first, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. All right, yeah, so I'm Dr. Jovan Hill. I'm the director of the Mississippi Entomological Museum, and I'm also an assistant professor uh, at Mississippi State University. Excellent. And so where did this all begin for you? I mean, were you a bug kid like I was growing up or were you, oh, sorry, insect kid (laughs) growing up or, you know, just a nature nut that eventually stumbled into it? Right. Yeah, probably the latter. Um, I was always just a a kid that liked the outdoors. It was kind of an escape, I guess. Uh, uh, Growing up, you know, I always went outside, but uh, particularly on the weekends. So my, my, my parents were divorced and my dad uh, was a nightclub owner. He owned a bunch hmm. of nightclubs. Well, he called them nightclubs. I'd call them a beer joint. <laughs> Fair um, enough. <laughs> Water and all. And, and uh, once I started getting older, uh, he would get me and my uh, my half nephew. I guess I have a half sister that's twenty years older than me. So my my nephew and I were uh, eight months apart in age. And uh, he would get us on the same weekends. And eventually, we got old enough. We got tired of going in and cleaning up beer joints on Saturday morning. <laughs> when it's, you know, nasty. Sure. And uh, we started just, he lived out in the country and we would just get up at like six in the morning and just go out into the woods. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and he would just, he just got to where he would like fill up a crock pot with like a bunch of different kinds of soup at once and like leave it on <laughs> for us. And, <laughs> nice. and so it was kind of cool. So every other weekend we kind of got to be like feral kids and he had a bunch of dogs and we would just go off, explore the woods and, um, run with the dogs and fish and, you know, make forts and junk like that. And, uh, and it was around ninth grade, uh, stuff I saw in the woods started showing up in my biology Mm. class, my, my freshman high school biology class. And I started putting things together and using words like basidio mycetes and, and, (laughs) you know, all these different things and, you know, dissecting crawfish and lover grasshoppers and all that stuff. So it started clicking. Um, and then, you know, it was just a series of dumb luck. Um, I, you know, first generation college kid, so I didn't really know much about college. Didn't really have any ambitions. I liked uh, nature and I made friends with a uh, biologist at the local Corps of Engineer Lake, hmm. you know, where I grew up. 
And, you know, my, in high school, well, in high school, I kind of wanted to be a vet. Like that was kind of my goal. I worked for a vet, Yeah. but eventually I worked for a vet long enough to realize that was not what I wanted to do. <laughs> Good so internship there. <laughs> yeah. I needed to be outside more. So I thought, huh, maybe I can get a job cutting grass or something at the, at the lake out there and eventually work my way into a biologist job. Oh, right? wow. I, I didn't have any idea how these things work. Nice. <laughs> um, so I graduated, got into community college, had a great biology teacher, um, for bio one and two in zoology that, you know, let me be the, the nerdy kid out of a hundred that would bring stuff in that we were talking about. <laughs> right. And, um, and then, you know, we had a, a Mississippi state branch campus where I lived and I was able to take night classes from an ornithologist that would drive down from the main campus oh, once, wow. a, once a week. And, uh, you know, he's like, Hey, you should go to Mississippi state. And I was like, oh, okay. Sure. <laughs> and um, wound up there. And then when I got here, uh, I kind of lucked into a job and wound up working for a postdoc. And he said, hey, uh, why don't you work on your own project? Hmm. You know, I can help you do an individual project. And he worked in tritrophic level interactions. So plants, herbivores, predators, sort yeah. of systems. And I had a... Uh, uh, a TA for a class that worked in black belt prairies. And I had seen signs for like black prairie wildlife management area on my way up between my hometown and, and this, the campus. And I was like, wow, what is that prairie in Mississippi? Like, yeah. I, you know, I grew up here. I never, never in my wildest mind that thought we had prairies. And so I was like, well, I'm going to start setting up that project. I was like, well, I'd like to learn out, learn more about these prairies. And so I talked to the grad student, he was graduating and he's like, Hey, you know, I need to take my plots down, but you could use my control plots for hmm. your experiment. And so I was like, cool. So I did that. And part of this tritrophic level thing, we looked at plants, grasshoppers and spiders. Nice. And so worked on that. And I had Dan Audie's uh, grasshoppers of North America, volume one and two that I use to identify my grasshoppers. And, um, and also Matt Dakin's Orthopter of Alabama that, that I used. And eventually, so we were working there. I was an undergraduate in wildlife. Mm -hmm. And I would come over to the Mississippi Entomological Museum to confirm my identifications in the collection. And, uh, you know, working through there, through semesters and whatever. And then one year I was over here and the director of the museum, Dr. Richard Brown, said, hey, you want to go to graduate school? <laughs> oh. And, and uh, I... Again, in life, had no plans um, post-graduation, um, you know, was working on a wildlife degree, but um, had changed my major about three times at that point and had yeah. a, over, over 200 undergraduate hours. Dang. And uh, so I was like, yeah. And then sitting through mitosis and meiosis for like the third time and <laughs> I mean, 300th time probably. Yeah. Um, I was like, I got to get out of here. So I went. <laughs> Uh, I started looking around online and found an interdisciplinary science degree. Next day, I walked up to the to the office for that. I was like, hey, look, this is the deal. I got an assistantship waiting on me. I got all these hours. They're like, yeah, you need to get out of here. Yeah. And uh, put that together. And I wound up doing a master's degree. So the, the master's project was on ants. It hmm. was ant money. And uh, uh, huh, thinking about that, it's like blood money, ant money. <laughs> ant money. It's, it's, its, own, money. <laughs> it's its own thing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And... Um, um, so I did, uh, looking at, 
kind of an ecology project looking at the difference between the ant communities in uh, forests and grasslands. Nice. And then breaking down grasslands a little more. Well, two types of forest and then two types of grasslands being pasture and in our native uh. prairies. And looking at the ant communities there and the environmental variables that contributed to those differences, or at least are correlated with those differences, I should say. Sure. And, uh, but Dr. Brown always kept, uh, you know, allowed me to keep working on grasshoppers through that. And uh, after, after I graduated from that, uh, worked for a little while, I rolled into a job here in the museum because we had mm. a lot of projects going on and had my master's and was working as a research associate and kept corresponding with Dan Otte, who wrote those first two books a little bit. And I found out he was coming to the South to collect on a collecting trip to work on a group. And I was like, well, hey, I can show you around the South because I, at, over that course of time, I've been working in Black and Blackland Prairies, started branching out into uh, Cedar Glades in Central Tennessee nice. and, and all these other, other grasslands. And had really started kind of getting really interested in those longleaf pine savannas. And I was like, yeah, let, let me show you around. And by the end of that trip, he had given me uh, that group that he'd come to work on for a PhD project. Nice. He's like, you're down here. You know what you're talking about. You know, that's the, the overall tax so well already. So uh, then I just, as an employee, huh. uh, you know, of the university, I got, two free classes a semester as part of your benefits package. Sweet. So, so worked while I was working, I worked on my PhD as well and, uh, graduated and then, uh, became interim director of the museum. Well, so I was a, a research professor for a while, so mm. I was completely soft money, started developing my own research project projects, largely based around invasive species or species inventory for, mm. you know, Fish and Wildlife Service, whatever. And then Dr. Brown finally retired from after 40 years from from the uh, from the museum. And uh, I was interim director for a while and I wasn't going to apply. Um, I was going <laughs> to like, well, I'll just be I'll get on the committee. Sure. And and see, you know, at least so I have a little say, you know. Yeah. And I kind of had my own thing going at the time. But. Uh, I walked into that room and they're like, what are you doing in here? <laughs> like, you need to be fine. <laughs> yeah, come on, man. <laughs> um, so I turned in, you know, I got off the committee and uh, uh, went through the whole process and interviewed and, wow. uh, you know, had some some good competition too, actually, and uh, wound up with the job. And it nice. still is just ridiculous to me that... <laughs> I wound up with all three degrees. Uh, I'm from Mississippi, all three degrees, and uh, and now I'm the director of this place that I learned taxonomy in. Wow. Still remember the first day I walked in into the building, and uh, um, but as a Mississippian, it's you know it's sure. a source of pride for me, right? Yeah, like it's like playing for the hometown team, right? So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I to, Mississippi gets a bad rap for a lot of things, but. By God, we're going to have a good insect collection. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. That is an awesome story. I love that because, you know, it's just about being curious and being willing to take some opportunities and chances, right? Like you can't right. plan this stuff. And That's people right. like you are a great example of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, you know, I like to say it's a lot of dumb luck that I just kind of fell into sure. things. And I recognize, especially as a, uh, as a mentor now, like, 
you know, Richard saying, Hey, you want to go to graduate school? It wasn't like I was just some slub that walked sure. in off the street. Right. Like right. He, he knew me, he knew I was going to, I had potential, but, uh, you know, yeah, I still feel like, you know, <laughs> right. <dumb luck. laughs> I mean, but think of all the different ways, like you look around at your peer group after another decade and you're like, anything can go off the rails at any point. And right. a lot of it's out of your control. But at the same time, again, you stayed curious, you had a passion and you followed it and look where it's led you. And like you said, you have now the ability to get your hands on a lot of really cool pots and that's right. what's really fun. Yeah. And it, and it blows me away now that, uh, you know, Dan Audie's first two volumes of grasshoppers in North America is what I learned on mm -hmm. and I've been able to get to know him. Yeah. And now he and I have an NSF grant to write the third volume together. That's wild. And it's like, <laughs> how stupid is that? <laughs> <laughs> stupid. Cool. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. awesome. So, um, yeah. Um, but all through the while, um, you know, over those years, I had a, uh, the postdoc that I worked for that got me started and, you know, encouraged me to do this project. You know, he moved on, worked in Puerto Rico for a while, setting up uh, long term studies nice. in, in the mountains there, looking at long term vegetation plots, to look at effects of hurricanes on the forest. Wow. And he, he invited me down to be his field assistant. Sweet. He paid my way down. He's like, if you'll be my field assistant, I'll pay your way down for, for a few weeks. Shucks. So do that. But then he wound up getting a job in Columbus, Georgia. Uh. And we wound up doing, uh, still collaborating. So during the period of time that I was uh, uh, a staff member and, st and working on my PhD, we collaborated a lot on Blackland Prairie stuff. Um, and we branched out into Lonely Pine Savannahs more and nice. actually did some stuff down in uh, Central Florida as well. And uh, so he was a plant ecologist and I was a grasshopper guy. Nice. And we got interested in... Uh, grasshopper feeding and whatnot. And, and he had all, so while I was a master's student, actually, we sort of did this kind of gorilla roadside uh, <laughs> inventory stuff where we just drove through the black belt. Yeah. And I don't know if you're familiar with the black belt much, but it's a crescent shaped uh, patch of soil or physiographic region, if you will, that goes from West Tennessee down through um, East Mississippi and then cuts over across central Alabama. Okay. So it's kind of a crescent shape. And it's it's not quite a shoreline, but a semi-shoreline of the of a Cretaceous Sea. Cool. It's called Mississippi Embayment. Okay. And so the soils, the subsoil is actually like a white uh, Cretaceous Age chalk. Huh. You can walk out into it and find huge oyster shells, uh, extinct genus of oyster called Exogyra, nice. shark teeth, mosasaurs, my son, uh, during COVID, the COVID year. Uh, my son was, and I were out exploring. We found a mosasaur skull. Oh, that's cool. Um, and the, the geology department here on campus has it on display in their, oh, in nice. their display collection. So with his name on it, it's pretty cool. Cool. Um, so all that, that rich soil um, has a pH of like eight. Whoa. Um, it kind of weathers and mixes with all the, the herbaceous material and forms this black soil. Because if you come here now, everybody's like, why is it called the black belt? Because the <laughs> yeah. soil is white everywhere. It's because we've tilled and, and uh, you know, uh, lost a lot of our fertile black soil through erosion. Damn. Um, and a lot of the prairie remnants that we have left were on places that were probably thin soil anyway mm -hmm. and not, not suitable for, for growing stuff. But, uh, yeah, that chalk is really, uh, there's a description from the 1920s that calls it tenacious. <laughs> and it really is. It has a really high shrink swell capacity. Huh. So in the winters, when it's full of water, 
uh, it is like you, you walk out into that chalk, you come out, your shoes are going to weigh 10, 15 pounds more. <laughs> in the summer, or even like right now, we haven't had rain in a while. Yeah. Um, uh, it shrinks and you get these huge cracks in the soil. So think about trees um, that shrinks well capacity is really hard on the roots. Yeah. They don't grow well in it except for Eastern red cedar. Ah. So what we have is an adaptive grassland. It's here because of the soils, uh, but it's maintained by fire. So in the absence of fire, the Eastern red cedars come in. Yeah. Vegetatively, they are uh, like an Eastern tall grass prairie. Okay. Uh, with, a few coastal plain species sure. mixed in. Um, but, you know, dominant grass is big blue, Indian grass, hmm. little blue, side oats, grandma, uh, sparabolus, things like that. Um, but you get silphium, prairie dock. Nice. Uh, three, four species of silphium, uh, probably about four species of liatris. Very cool. Uh, uh, all that stuff. So it is very much uh, uh, a, a tall grass prairie. Yeah. And, so I don't know where I was going with all that, but <laughs> it's quite uh, all right. It's but, awesome. But John, but, uh, John Barone, the postdoc, he, he got into, into mapping kind yeah. of ArcGIS stuff. And this was like back in two, early two thousands. Oh, so yeah. And he would go to, go to courthouses and he was actually able to find the original surveys where Mississippi was surveyed. Cool. And, and most of the surveyors in the region actually mapped out the prairies. Nice. Um, and, and even in their descriptions, they would say left swamp entered, gently rolling prairie, da da da, you know, and all that cool stuff. So he was able to put all that into, into a, make a shape file out of it. And so that was one of his, his probably the biggest contribution he made, but, but we would go through the black belt. That's where I was going. Yeah, we yeah. would drive through the black belt, find any remnant we could. And he would go out and make a plant survey and just collect, you know, every species of plant he could. And then I was out looking for ants and grasshoppers. Nice. And so we, we published a couple of easy little papers, you know, flora of the black belt, of black belt prairie remnants, you know, ants of the black belt, grasshoppers of the black belt. But then we started putting together and other, other bigger things. But later uh, he had all these plants, mm-hmm. this massive plant collection, and he started getting back into sort of triotrophic thing and, and feeding and all that. So he started barcoding all the plants mm. and then we'd go out and catch grasshoppers and one of the first things a grasshopper does, well, the first thing a grasshopper does when you catch it is spit on it. <laughs> yeah. The second thing is going to probably defecate. Oh, fun. <laughs> grasshoppers are just, I mean, they're like cows. They're big yeah. for insects. They're big herbivores, right? And uh, and so we would collect that feces and barcode them. Oh, wow. And we started, so we never, and we did an awful lot of that. Then we moved to Longleaf and we did it there, down at Tall Timbers and some other places. Um, and we have some really good data. We haven't published it yet. Sure. Uh, John wound up leaving uh, academia, but uh, I think he's going to come back in eventually. But nice. uh, we got some cool stuff, um, cool stuff out of it. So, yeah. Um, and then just over the years, started working in Appalachian Balds. I've worked in Cedar Glades in Tennessee, the Cumberland Plateau. We have a project just wrapped up there looking at pollinators on the Cumberland Plateau. Oh, and, and shortly, Pine Savannas. Oh, cool. Um, Worked in dunes on uh, in inland, uh, windblown dunes in eastern Georgia that are really cool. Yeah, um, that's yeah, a lot awesome. Of huge Florida wet Florida dry prairies, um, a lot of stuff. Even down in the Everglades. So I've been Sweet. all over the South, 
not many types of grasslands I haven't set foot in. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing, though, because I think a lot of times people don't realize, A, that the South, especially the Southeast, has or had a lot more than it does today, but is known right. for really diverse grassland communities. But I, I really, what I really appreciate about your work and the work you've collaborated on is that it, it takes this taxonomic level sort of approach, but also applies the ecology to it. And I'm guessing that's kind of what you were getting at with the the trophic cascade and um, or trophic interactions and the barcoding. You're using the DNA to see who's eating what and and that sort of approach to it because it's easy enough to get kind of stuck in a lab under a microscope looking at things, dissecting it. Okay, this is different than this. This is different than that. But to then look at it in the context of the ecology, the habitat that they're in, that's right. That's a really cool approach because I'm I'm guessing just like you know the edaphic or soil conditions change what plants grow there that in turn is going to affect the ant communities, the grasshopper communities, a lot of other things as well in the arthropod world, right? That's right. And in fact, uh, John and I collaborated on a paper, on a project with that, with the Natchez Trace Parkway. Oh, wow. There's a, there's a small section of the trace up around Tupelo, Mississippi that, that transects the black belt. Okay. So first thing, you know, they, they uh, contracted us to go out and find where their remnants are. So we did that. And Sweet. then the next step is because they were very cedar encroached, um, was to uh you know try to restore them mm -hmm. but the land manager there is like well let's let's get more out of it and let's design an experiment and see what's the best way to save these small remnants because all of these these were pretty mm -hmm. small remnants mm -hmm. um and so and she was interested in looking at well do we uh do we just burn them or do we cut the cedar down and leave it in place and then burn mm -hmm. or do we cut it cut it and haul it off so uh so we looked at all that, looking at also the cost of doing that. But then, so we applied all these treatments to these plots and had control plots. And then we monitored the plant and, and grasshopper communities uh, along there. Oh, and nice. uh, the best response was actually cut cut the cedars and haul them off site. Cool. Um, uh, the, the vegetation responded much better to that. And, and plus some of those really cedar encroached ones, you couldn't even get a fire through them anyway. Right. Because there was not enough fuel on the ground and cedar litter seems to suppress uh fire pretty well wow. so. which is kind of weird to think about but you know it is weird because uh you can torch up a, yeah. a green but yeah yep pretty quickly so when it yeah. comes to thinking about how these habitat differences and really management at the end of the day nowadays uh affect communities of arthropods like grasshoppers i mean you hear a lot about insects being specialists and being tied to certain plants or groups of plants are grasshoppers right. any exception to that? Like, how are they segregating niche? Is it more about structure of the habitat or food? Like, what are you finding? Yeah, yeah so um, there, well, so especially in the East, there aren't many specialist grasshoppers. Okay. Uh, most of them are generalists, but they do, uh, probably the, the best way that they structure themselves is by, I guess, microhabitat. So okay. there are grasshoppers that really like to be on bare ground. They're very cryptically colored, um, you know, blend in with the soil, whatever they're sitting on usually. Um, and we have some really cool ones that, that live on this chalk out here in the black belt. I bet. Um, um, uh, so there's that way. Some like to be in the tall grass. Some like to be in short, shorter grass. And then, you know, there are some that from a broad subfamily level, some feed on uh, grasses and forbs. Some may feed just on forbs and then some feed just on grasses. So you do kind of can break mm. it down that way. So what seems to be the trend, and, and they actually did some work out at Kanza on this, is that 
you know, bison grazing has a really positive impact on impact on diversity because they create that structural heterogeneity. And I've, I've been to Kanza right. and the, the, the best grasshopper collecting was in the bison enclosure <laughs> because you had some places that weren't necessarily grazed much. Um, but then you have places where they'd taken it down and then you can get all those, yeah. those things that like the bare ground, you get that structural heterogeneity there. Um, and then, you know, even the bison wallows, they like to wallow around and it's pretty disturbed there and you get ragweed and there's a ragweed specialist. So, sure. um, yeah. And then, uh, something pretty cool. So the black belt here, we have a lot of disjunct species. So meaning that they occur here in the black belt, uh, and then maybe in the great plains further west. Okay. And we have examples from plants. We have examples from several groups of insects as huh. well. And, uh, just for the last couple of years, we've been working with uh, a private landowner just across the state line in Alabama. And this family owns 11,000 acres. Ooh, wow. Yeah. And sure. when, so the director of the Southeastern, Southeastern Grassland Institute, I don't know if you know him, Dwayne Estes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we went out there with Theo Witzel. Witzel. He was from Arkansas and we were, we were touring around. Brian Keener is a botanist from the, from, yeah, he was uh, recently on the show. Okay. Yeah. So we were out there touring the site and it was October, I think of 2020, I think. And we were riding around on a little side by side and Theo just about, uh, jumps off the side by side and it's like, Whoa, that's a, that's a S1 G1 plant right there. It was, a, it was an Agalinus auriculata, I believe. And, um, you know, we started touring the site and it was amazing. Yeah. Um, just one from the scope and it's been in this family since like, the early 1900, 1916, 1918, somewhere around there. And they've burned it. Wow. And like you would see transitions between habitats. Like you just don't, haven't seen anywhere else in the black belt. So <laughs> right. you would go from, from blackjack, post oak, savannah, and it would grade into, you know, open prairie. Um, and usually like most places you see now are just hard edges. Right. You know, a square. A power, a power line right away or, or, you know, fence line, something like that. Yeah. And it was just so cool to see those transitions. And I don't know what the, what Brian's got the plant catalog to, but it's, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> but we found a lot of good insects there. And th just this summer, um, I have a, a, a fresh graduate student. She just started, um, Shelby. And uh, I gave her a genus to work on, genus of grasshoppers to work on that actually are specialists. They feed on typically on yellow flowered asters. Wow. Uh, a lot of, a lot of solidago specialists and out West they feed on gutorizia. Huh. Uh, um, and, and then there's one species that tends to feed on ragweed or helianthus. Okay. And, uh, uh, but that species Hesperitetic speciosa is only known largely from the West. Yeah. I think there's one Eastern record from like Indiana or somewhere from the early 1900s. And, uh, so I took her out. I knew there was a different species of Hesperitetics out here at this farm in this, in this great prairie that they have. And I was like, all right, Shelby, uh, uh, go out there and find some Hesperitetics. I got to talk to these people over here. And, uh, and she was actually with another grad student of mine, uh, Jarave, who's from Malawi, that's working on Malawian grasshoppers, but, nice. uh, they were out there. And then, so I go back and check on them and Shelby's like, we got this. And she knew Hesperitetics from, from me training her and working with specimens in the museum. She knew Speciosa. She just didn't quite have a concept of the distribution yet. Yeah. I'm like, 
I'm like, wait a minute, you got this here? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, we got it right over there. And we started looking and we wound up with like nine, but we found tons of them out there wow. on, they were seemed to be on the ambrosia and, um, you know, got to looking and yeah, there's no records, uh, especially in the Southeast. And here it is on this prairie that I had been to multiple times. It's not that time of year. Yeah. Uh, one of my mentors, Matt Dakin did grasshoppers of Alabama in the 1960s. Um, and I had surveyed all these other black belt remnants, you know, years before mm -hmm. so we were in a well-surveyed area, but then, <laughs> and this one remnant, uh, feeding on Western. So Western ragweed is what it feeds on. It's not feeding on like the common ragweeds here. Okay. Here our wet, the Western ragweed out West is obviously like everywhere. Yeah. But here in the black belt, it's a pretty conservative thing. You find it in remnants. Interesting. And, uh, and you know, he, here we had this thing and and it, and it was so great because it was her, literally her first time in the field <laughs> and she goes to this you know this place alabama that that's well surveyed in this yeah. field site and well surveyed and her first grasshopper was this uh disjunct species and i have a larger project on um uh population genetics of all north american melanopline grasshoppers and so we sent them off and hopefully soon we'll see how they they are related to uh, you know, the Western populations. So that's going to be pretty cool. That is so awesome. And it's, it's probably like one of those like, Hey, congrats. This is amazing. This doesn't <laughs> happen very often. So don't think this is normal. <laughs> kind of yeah. in the training. Yeah, it's all downhill from here. Yeah. yeah. It's all <laughs> basics. <laughs> that's amazing though. And again, so, it, like get outside and look. And that's the point is right. it, like, we think the low hanging fruit, like, well, every inch has been explored. No, no, trust me. Well, it's timing. It's luck. It's, that's a good point. So yeah. I tell people uh, often when they come for tours of the museum that in the last, I guess we'll say six or seven years now that I've described 40 new species of grasshopper Whoa. from the southeastern United States. Wow. And most of those come from these remnant grasslands. Obviously, grasshoppers and grass grasslands go together. Yeah. We do have some some forest or woodland dwelling, dwelling grasshoppers and even arboreal grasshoppers here in the southeast. But Obviously, most of them occur in grasslands. Sure. The first grasshopper I ever described was from the Cedar Glades in <sighs> central Tennessee. And literally, the first step I took out of the car, one foot was still in the car. <laughs> I step out and this grasshopper jumps up and I'm like, whoa, what is that? <laughs> and, and I'm like, man, I've never seen that. I don't know what this is. And, you know, started surveying in every glade I went to. It was there. Wow. But very restricted to the glades. And I wound up going back multiple years and doing a study on the different kind of zones because that's a, again an adaptive grassland. So from yeah. you go from bare rock to the soil and then eventually into the cedar. And so I did a study of the grasshopper communities along that gradient, but you know, brought it back here, took it up to the Academy of Natural Sciences. Okay, this is new. So described it. And uh and that's in, you know those cedar glades around Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. I mean, like a large Eastern North American city Yeah, uh, in cedar glades that have been studied by biologists since this, you know, 1800s, at least, I mean, you know, yeah. maybe before, but um, you know, and it just took the right person, you yeah. know, to know that taxa to get in there. So who knows what else is hiding in these, these cool grasslands we have here. Right, right. And that's right here in our backyard. Why go to the tropics? Exactly. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. hear that time and time again is 
I am this kind of specialist. I saw a lot of other things that I don't know anything about. So <laughs> please tell your friends, get out there right. gently, of That's course. Right. But and it also really kind of emphasizes going back to what you were talking about with uh, the, 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 the juniperus encroachment is, right. you know, there's this idea that like more trees is better. And if you're used to that's just right. seeing them out there, you're like, oh, yeah, that's normal. And then you get fired up when people go cutting them down. But when it comes to like that heterogeneity stuff you're talking about, we need open patches. We need forested patches. But, you know, grasslands right. have been hit so hard. And think about, you know, the loss of the habitat. What? was living in that habitat and, and how much of it did we not know given what you've just right. said? Right. That's, that's something we're, we, I see lots of places uh, in the black belt. We'll say on uh, certain government agency lands, <laughs> uh, the biologists often fight the maintenance people yeah. because they have a, a sense of what it's supposed to look like and they have to maintain a certain appearance. Sure. And that means keeping the cedar in some cases, but, it's not what should be there yeah. um, and they're doing detriment to the natural communities, but also um, we're kind of in some ways fighting this in, in Tennessee on the, on the Cumberland plateau where they should have short leaf pine savannas. But as a result of fire suppression, it's now okay. These nice, you know, if you look at them, nice mesic Oak Hickory forest, right? right? Like nobody wants to cut those down those hardwood forests, Right. But we're working in these power line, right. Of ways that, uh, were some of the first power lines to go in as part of the new deal in the 1940s. Wow. Some of them still have the, on the power poles, still have the original tags <laughs> on. And, and what's in these power lines is like, you know, it's like a time machine almost yeah. because there's all these heliophytic, rare heliophytic plants or like crazy orchids, uh, like just tons of rare plants. And they're just there because that power line has kept it open. Um, and then we're finding the same thing with insects and all that. Um, but if you ask, you know, most of the people up there, you know, that's bad. Oak Hickory Forest is good. Right. And we're running into some problems with that with hunters at a local wildlife refuge that I think in the late 90s, uh, bark beetles came in and killed all the pines. Oh, wow. But the, and they, they, the wildlife managers there is a great guy, Clarence Coffee, that's just a it was a grandfatherly kind of figure, just a wealth of knowledge that worked there. And he's like, oh, let's burn it. And they burned it. <laughs> and this tremendous savanna came back at Catoosa wow. Wildlife Management area. It's, it's so cool. Such a cool place. There was, I was there one spring for one of our museum expeditions. And I don't think I've ever seen a place more alive with insects. Nice. It's just amazing. And, and so it's great savanna, but you know, we're kind of having some conflict with the hunters now because they're like, you know, this isn't working. Our, our deer herd's not bigger Our you know, whatever. Uh, we don't have more deer. Well, that's probably not going to happen, but you know, you're going to have more fox squirrel. You're going to have more quail, all right, these things. Right. Um, there's more plant diversity out there. Um, and, but they're in their mind, like they should have that Oak Hickory hardwood forest. Yeah. So it's interesting. And it's just, you know, it's a uh, changing people's minds. It's right. like planting, planting with native plants, yeah. landscaping with native plants. I guess I should say that, you know, we don't, there's not really a native plant that's a good equivalent for a crepe myrtle. Like right. Myrtle, <laughs> yeah. Myrtle, you can beat the heck out of them. You can chop them up, make them look like a hat rack. They can take a lot of abuse, can take a lot of drought, whatever. Um, and there are plants that you can do that with, but that, that general aesthetic. Right. And it's just about changing people's perspective, finding something else that, that can do those things. It, it's probably not going to look exactly the same, but yeah. uh, it's going to be a lot better 
overall <laughs> collectively right yeah bigger yeah. maybe healthier deer maybe not as many we don't technically need more it's not good for you know health and all that but i empathize yeah. i really do because you do get used to something you do have biases right. everywhere and like you said you just have to be willing to be patient unfortunately and have those conversations i, I just That's had right. uh, merlin tuttle right. on and he said you know i'd rather make friends than win a battle because with friends you can have conversations you can get more progress than just no i win you're wrong i'm right that's that's not yeah. working and it, i don't get why we still keep doing it because it's very obviously not working <laughs> yeah it's a it's amazing i uh clarence coffee who i mentioned i uh, just visited with him recently and we were talking about fire and whatnot and and he uh sent me a paper later on um dang i had it around somewhere i can't find it now but uh but it, essentially the title was something like fire is right or something but it's it was written by a forest service psychologist Forest service psychologist in the 1940s. Okay. Yeah. In the 1940s. And his, the the gist of this paper was, is he was trying to figure out why these poor rural white people kept setting the woods on fire. Hmm. And what, what it amounted to was, and, and the first part of the paper is just like, he wrote it as they talked. So imagine, you know, hillbilly country talk sort of, Sure. if you were to, stereotype that i guess that's like he wrote it like that with contractions and all that fascinating um but basically they burned because their fathers burned and their grandfathers burned right and the the gist was fire is right is what he said because it it kept the grass green it kept the ticks away you know made the forage good there was kept the the flu virus or flu bug away Mm. um all these different things (laughs) and that it was just good yeah right and so this psychologist, you know, this is part of, again, sort of this new sort of propaganda, like they were trying to get them to stop burning the woods. Oh, wow. Um, and, and, you know, talked about motorists driving down from the, from the North and complaining about the smoke and, 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 and the ash everywhere. And uh, obviously they're trying to save the forest and it's probably somewhere along the Smoky Bear. Oh campaign. yeah. Oh yeah. So then, he has like this 10, he recommends this 10 step program in that paper to sort of for the forest service to infiltrate these communities hmm. to get them to stop burning by building community centers. And then around those community centers where they're all gathering and using the community center to have displays or, you know, kind of set aside some land that doesn't get burned as an example of what good forest management is. Wow. And it's so funny because now we've come full circle and we're trying to get them, you know, we want to put fire back on the ground. <laughs> and it's like, maybe, you know, we didn't know best, but some there, you know, it's like, I, I forget what Pappy, he says, there's some quote in the paper about Pappy or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fire's right. And That's amazing. Like, yeah. Like Pappy was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, who did Pappy learn it from? Probably the indigenous people that were doing it that's, for that's millennia right. to, you know, that's- for all the same reasons. And it's it's one of those things that like hindsight is always twenty twenty. We unfortunately can't change the past, but boy, can we make better decisions for the future, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and now, you know, maybe we are coming back around to, to, to fire being right and getting it on the landscape, but maybe now we need to look at the timing of that. Sure. Um yeah, because it burned when it burned good. We burned when it's easy for us to manage. <laughs> yeah, that's the other part is timing. It's like, well, where's the least amount of liability here? Which, you know, I'd rather right. something than nothing. But 
yeah, yeah. that's right. We yeah. got a ways to go on the psychology. I think we need four service psychologists again, but like <laughs> more training. Maybe so. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wild to me. Or like marketers, at least, to figure out how to get yeah. into the the psychology of the people you're trying to reach. But I digress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, you've also part of you're branching out, I guess. And that's one way yep. I actually ended up finding your work. And you've, you've got your hands at a lot of different places. You've seen a lot of different grasslands. I'm really curious. You've d recently done some work on uh, a Spiranthes orchid too, which to me is like one of my favorite genera of orchids, but how cool, cool is okay. it that you're able to dive in and, you know, get yep. your hands dirty in that world? Yeah. So, uh, that all came about because, uh, uh I had a undergraduate student worker that, you know, this is one of the cool things about my job is that yeah. now I get to to be that person who who says, hey, you want to go to graduate school or <laughs> you want to work on uh, this, <laughs> you know, and, and help out, you know, help out people. And nice. I had a, a student worker that wanted to do a project. And here at Mississippi State, we have this undergraduate research scholars project where you can apply for money and get stuff. And uh, we were going to try to work actually on agave virginica hmm. and it just things didn't work out. I think that might've been the COVID year. So, you know, the summer field season was weird and I'm like, well, let's just switch to uh Spiranthes. It'll, it'll come out later this fall and everything should be okay. It should be settled down. And he's a horticulture major as an undergraduate. And, hmm. um, but we started looking around at Spiranthes. So back in the nineties, there was a grad student here at Mississippi state that did a B survey of, of the black belt. Of, of mostly just a couple of remnants here close to Startwell. And she kept uh, records, flower visitation records for all these, these bee species. But then, so I went to look to see, you know, what pollinates Spiranthes and she had no records for Spiranthes. Um, so we have Spiranthes mandicamporum here in the black belt, which is state listed. It's called great plains lady stresses. So again, it's disjunct yeah. from, from, from the uh, Western populations. And, she had no records for it, but here, I mean, it's, it's a fall blooming thing. And here, uh, I don't think it's even started blooming yet. It's probably just now coming into yeah. bloom. So like, you know, and Phillips, the student is, is still working on it, uh, on the plant now for his, his master's work. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of trouble because classes are in session, right? <laughs> but that's probably why Beverly cut off when she did her B surveys. Sure. So the first thing you did was an undergraduate was just going out and seeing what goes to the flowers. Yeah. That was that. And that was the paper we wound up publishing. But um, just because something goes to a flower doesn't mean it's a pollinator. Truth. Um, and so we saw, you know, we observed a lot of bees, uh, smaller bees, helictids, things like that, that were going in and would go into the flower and then just come out after a while, but not remove the pollinia. Mm. Um, but bigger bees like uh, Zalacopes or Bombus, bumblebees, uh, they would go in and usually have the uh, pollinia on their proboscis. Nice. Uh, on their tongue, I guess you'd say. Um, and so, you know, they may be actually be acting as pollinators. But, yeah. you know, we saw ants going into the flowers, a whole host of different things. Um, so for his master's work, he did a, you know, kind of a, a trial where he bagged flowers and self-pollinate hand pollinated things and then had some open to insects and uh, then we started getting a little bit out of our wheelhouse in terms of the variables and things I that <laughs> we're not pollination ecologists very quickly i'm assuming <laughs> yeah and so i'm like maybe we should should swerve back into our lane sure and so now because there is this gap of data in uh late season pollination and one of the cool things is that after you get a certain you know 
in the fall a certain amount, like spirantes is the only thing blooming. Right. Um, all that, like we had our first frost yesterday, actually. And so it probably killed back a lot of the asters yeah. and, um, and solid egg and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, that's going to be the only thing. So it's like, so we, he's, he's been collecting field data on the vegetation and the pollinator communities starting back in September. Nice. And then he's going to follow it through probably till Spiranthes stops blooming and, and partly just to pick up that fall, what the fall sure. uh, pollinator community is, but then have plant, plant data to tie to that. But then eventually uh, maybe see, you know, how important maybe Spiranthes is for, for some of these late yeah. uh, occurring pollinators. I'd so, imagine. Yeah. So I don't know. It's kind of what it evolved into. And, that's cool. Uh, but again, taking opportunities as they pre- present themselves, right? right. And, and Yeah, that's, that's, that's life. And, yeah. and it's part of science. People, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you want to try to try to have a plan and methodology and all that. Sometimes life happens, man. And Truth. you gotta, you gotta, you gotta switch careers or yeah. change lanes. <laughs> but it's, it's still fascinating too, because going back to what we were saying about sort of the low hanging fruit, there's still so much of it, you know, Spiranthes, uh, yeah. especially the Great Plains Lady Stress, it, it's a charismatic orchid. Orchids That's themselves right. are charismatic. And yet there's yeah. gaps in our understanding, massive ones about like, how is this thing even reproducing? So, you know, go forth ask questions you'd be very surprised how quickly you get to i don't know that and there's your project <laughs> yeah yeah and, and and you know for the spiranthes just you know he went through a big literature search and there was one record of flower visitation the camporum and it was from the midwest huh um and uh so well i have a video so, yeah. i want to send you i think it might, okay. if it's helpful it's helpful if not uh, i think it's pretty sure it's magna camporum getting visited but either way it's yeah. That'd be fun. Well, yeah. Very cool. So, yeah. So with that in mind, I mean, what's over the horizon? What What's getting you excited in the not too distant future? Um, oof. So, <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm, I stay pretty busy here at yeah, the, sounds the museum. We have, uh, I have about 13, I'm down a couple staff members right now, but typically we run about 13 staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the summer we may employ up to 30 student workers. Oh, wow. Um, we have, yeah, I'll say 30, we usually occupy or, uh, run about 30 to 40, uh, funded projects at a time. Wow. So we stay busy. A, a lot of that work is, is just survey for, you know, plant pests sure. that would ex- exotic plant pests. Um, but then we do a lot of other survey work, but my big stuff right now, um, is, uh, working on the third volume of North American grasshoppers. Nice. And then I have another NSF project looking at the population, uh, basically doing a population genetic study of all the North American melanoplons, which is about 600, six, over 600 species. Wow. Um, and I'm doing that with Lacey Knowles at the University of Michigan. Very cool. And uh, so that that's going to be a really cool, really cool project. Um, but still, um, I've got a fun project that I just wrapped up and I've had a collaborator run the stats on that's looking at the grasshopper uh, communities on and different plant communities on the Lake Wales Ridge. Oh, cool. Um, so looking at scrub, seasonal wetlands, um, cutthroat seeps, all these, uh, nice. all these different kind of vegetation communities. Most people just think scrub. Yeah. On the Lake Wales Ridge, because that's where all the cool plants are. But uh, there's even, you know, the ridge top was originally Sand Hill. Mm. And that was the first community to kind of go under for, for orange 
uh, citrus groves, I guess. And uh, so there's very little sand hill left on the ridge and, and then the scrub was kind of on the sides. And so I was able to get a few of those plots in. And so I just uh, went in and, and it was just something I did for fun. I'd set up plots and do quadrats for getting all the plant data count the grasshopper diversity and abundance in them and i wound up i think i did 79 plots over three or four years uh i did it started out as a fish and wildlife service project did like 20 plots for that and i I just liked it so i (laughs) and and i love florida scrub so i I kept going back (laughs) that's excellent man you have managed to work in some pretty spectacular habitats Uh, it's it's like fomo just hearing it that's (laughs) well done for someone that didn't have a plan you have managed to you did it. Yeah. <laughs> You've achieved. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's one of those things that, you know, places I, I want to go to, I, I find some way to get some funding to go there. <laughs> nice. Good on you. Good skill to have. Yeah. Well, Dr. Yeah. Hill, this has been incredible. If people want to keep a finger on the pulse of your work or learn more about the museum, where do you recommend they go looking? Wow. Uh, I do have a, a Twitter account. Uh, it's just my name and Facebook, same way. Um, mm-hmm. But also they can check out the Mississippi Entomological Museum's Facebook page. Yeah. Excellent. And I'll put up links so no one has to pull over or get out of the shower to write that down. But Dr. Hill, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for working with me on getting this rescheduled. But uh, yeah, and <laughs> yeah. dealing with the tech no issues that we had, if only people knew. But uh, yeah, again, really appreciate your time and for you telling us about this. It's really exciting and um, keep discovering and getting out there. It's it's incredible work. All right. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. Cheers. Yep. See you. All right. Incredible stuff. I thank Dr. Hill for taking time out of his very busy schedule to talk with us. And as always, go check the links over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast, where I put all of the relevant information from each episode. I'm serious. If you haven't had a chance to explore a glade or a grassland, do it. The plant life is amazing, but all of the organisms that rely on those plants are also really interesting and fun to encounter. And if you're enjoying this show, please consider supporting it. There are a lot of great ways to do it. You can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch. We have stickers. We also have a Patreon over at patreon.com slash plants. There's some kickbacks for everyone that throws in a little bit of cash each and every month, but all of those ways really do truly help keep the show up and running. I couldn't be doing it without the support. So thank you to everyone that's pitched in thus far. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.